We're continuing our study of a Christian in Babylon with Daniel chapter 7. I'll read the text for us and then we'll talk about it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the whole people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. 
he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under, under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is God's word. Well, happy Reformation Sunday to all of you. Uh, this Sunday in the church year, the, the Sunday closest to October 31st is the Sunday where uh, we celebrate the Reformation. Uh, for those of you who are maybe not familiar with the Reformation, uh, the celebration is of the posting of the 95 Theses of Martin Luther to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany on uh, October 31st, 1517. Uh, if you know a little bit of the history of that time, you know that that action was the catalyst that sparked the Protestant Reformation, which some historians have called the most significant event in world history. <laughs> uh, it changed just about everything about the way the world worked, how people learned, how people practiced their faith, politics, all sorts of things changed because of the Protestant Reformation, and we celebrate that on this Sunday every year. But what I have to do is probably clear up some things about Reformation, because Reformation Sunday can very easily be misunderstood by those who are maybe a little bit ignorant of the history or, frankly, have been taught something different. Uh, two things I want you to know are not true about Reformation Sunday. Uh, Reformation Sunday, first of all, is not Rebellion Sunday. Uh, it is sometimes lodged as a criticism of those who are called Protestants that the goal of the Protestant Reformation was to rebel against the Catholic Church. Uh, this actually is not the case. If you look at the work of Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, his goal was never to break off from the Roman Catholic Church. His goal was to never have his separate church body or theological tradition. His effort was actually to bring the Roman Catholic Church back in line with the scripture. You can see this from the 95 Theses. Uh, his 95 Theses were his response to seeing what he saw as scriptural corruption in the church. He said, here are 95 statements, let's discuss them so that we can find the truth of God's word and bring the church back in line with it. Even today, we call ourselves a Lutheran church, but that really is not the name we want for ourselves. That was a name that others gave to us. Uh, we wanted to be, well, the Christian church, or really, we wanted to be the original Catholic church because Catholic just means universal. But unfortunately, that's not how the history played out. And then, to be frank, what Reformation really is, is not where the Protestants rebelled against the Catholics, but where the Catholics rebelled against God's word. And the Lutherans held on to the truth of the scriptures. It truly was trying to reform the church, and we continue to celebrate that. Which brings me to the second thing that you should know about Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday is not really about Martin Luther. But it's not about posting 95 theses. It's not about all the things that he wrote or all the things that he preached. It was about what he believed. He believed that scripture was the final authority on all things when it comes to God. And he wanted to hold his brothers and sisters in faith to account for that. And that's what we celebrate. 
We don't celebrate all of the trappings of Reformation as much as we celebrate the core of it, which is scripture above all. Now you might think to yourself, okay, this is a little bit esoteric and abstract and history that I guess sort of matters, but what does this mean for me today? 500 and some years later, why do we care still? Well, the answer is if you would look at basically any religious body, but for the sake of argument, I'm going to focus on Christian church bodies for now, you will notice that every single Christian church body defines their theology by four characteristics, four things that they draw their theology from. Those things are scripture, tradition, experience, and logic. Now, every Christian takes their theology, how they understand God from these four things. The difference between each church body or each Christian is which one of these is supreme. Which one of these do you follow when two of them come into contradiction? If you have something that scripture says and your logic or your experience or your tradition says something different, then what do you do? And this is how you would get, well, an answer to the question many people ask, why are there so many denominations? Here's your answer. Different denominations will put one of these above the others, and then we'll come to different conclusions about God. So let me give you some examples. Uh, Let's say there's um, a place in the scripture you read that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. Now, you know that he's talking about bread and wine, right? This bread is my body and this wine is my blood. And you think to yourself, logically, that makes no sense. How can a human body be with bread and wine? And moreover than that, isn't Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God? I mean, how can he be there and also be on every single altar of every single Christian church that celebrates the Lord's Supper every Sunday? It makes no logical sense. So what do you do? Do you let your logic win out? Or do you let scripture say what it says? If you would go to many Protestant churches, many mainline Protestant churches, you would find that they see logic as more important than scripture on this. And they will say the Lord's Supper is not actually Jesus' body and blood. That doesn't make sense. Therefore, it must be a symbol. But the Lutherans, we choose to trust scripture. Even though I have no clue how this all works, that's what Jesus said. And that's what's in scripture. And so that's what I trust. How about another one? Let's say uh, you read these places in the Bible where it says that um, nothing can take me out of your hand or, or your sins are forgiven or God loves you or God has promised you heaven. All these great promises of, of the goodness of God for you, but you don't feel it. Like, you remember that sin, that thing that you did that you really don't want anybody to know about, and you wonder, can that really be true for me? Or it's the thing that you've fallen into now more times than you can count, the thing you keep going back to, and you think to yourself, can I, can I really be forgiven after I've fallen that many times? Or maybe you're here on Sunday, and you see other people, and they're kind of bouncing and happy, and maybe hands are up in the air, people are clapping, but you're not feeling it. You're depressed maybe clinically, maybe just having a bad day and you're not, you're not feeling the joy of the Lord. What do you do? Do you let your experience win out or do you let scripture win out? If you're part of many charismatic, Pentecostal, Assemblies of God type churches, you let experience win out. How do I know if I'm good with God? Well, I feel it. Right? I feel good with God. The sun is shining on my face. Things are going well in my life. That way I know God is with me but not the Lutherans. We believe scripture. 
Even if you don't feel like it right now, you are forgiven. Even if you feel terrible about yourself, you are loved, you are wanted, you are accepted and fully brought in through the blood of Jesus. You might not feel it right now, but it's true. And maybe, (laughs) as a little bit of a tangent, that's why Lutheran churches sometimes are filled with kind of depressed people. (laughs) Because we fit in here. Because we believe that scripture is more true than our feelings. As 1 John says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Okay, another example. Let's say the Bible has nothing to say about a place called purgatory, a special veneration of the Virgin Mary, or that it says specifically that there will be false teachers in the last days who will stop people from marrying. But the leader of your church says that there are certain people who are not allowed to marry, that there is a place called purgatory and you should worship the Virgin Mary or at least pray to her. What do you do? Do you let your tradition win out? Do you let the councils of the church, the leaders of the church say what is true? Or do you let scripture interpret life? If on the former, then you end up as the Roman Catholic Church has, with a stance that scripture is equal to the councils of the church and the words of the Pope. But the Lutherans believe that scripture is supreme. That no person, no matter how high his status, can say anything that contradicts the word of God, and if he does, it is to be rejected. And no tradition should be held on to if it holds something that is contrary to scripture. Scripture above all. This is what it means to be a Lutheran. Scripture trumps all other things. If my logic can't make sense of it or my experience doesn't feel it or if my traditions don't line up with it, I trust Scripture. And here's why this matters. Um, Because there are some of you in the room who are thinking about becoming part of our church, becoming Lutheran. And I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. This is what we're about. We're going to trust Scripture above all things, even when it doesn't make sense, feel right, or our traditions contradict it. And there are some of you who have been here for years, maybe even a decade or so, and you need to be reminded. This is what we believe. Above anyone's preferences, anyone's feelings, anyone's logic, anyone's traditions, we believe what scripture says. And that's what Daniel 7 is about. Uh, For all of the crazy images, as you're reading along with me, you're probably thinking to yourself, this is ridiculous. Like, How do I make sense of all this? Um, This is what it's about. It's about this big idea that no one or nothing can overcome Jesus and his word. No one and nothing can overcome Jesus and his word. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through Daniel 7, uh, recount the, the story a little bit for you. Unfortunately, just because of time, I'm not going to be able to explain every single image and last bit of this, um, but I did study it. And if you do want to know, like stop me after worship, send me an email, call me this week, and I'll walk you through all the details. But for today, because I want us to get to this main point of comfort, I'm just going to assert some things about the text. Hopefully you can trust me at least for this morning on those things. The text starts with Daniel receiving a vision, and it is a vision of four beasts. Um, There are many artists' renditions of this. This is one of the better ones that I saw. He sees uh, something that looks like a lion with wings, something that looks like a bear, something that looks like a four-headed leopard, and some other beast that he doesn't really describe so much in how it looks, but more in how it behaves. And what we find out is that these four beasts mimic the four sections of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream back in Daniel chapter 2. So if you remember back when we studied in Daniel chapter 2, we saw that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue, and the statue had a gold head, and it had silver arms and shoulders, it had a bronze torso and iron legs. 
And what we talked about at that time is that these represent four kingdoms, the gold head being Babylon, the silver arms and shoulders being the medial Persian empire, which eventually becomes the Persian empire, the bronze being Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then the iron legs being the Roman empire. These four beasts mimic those four kingdoms, the lion being Babylon, the bear being the medial Persians, the leopard being Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and this terrifying beast at the end being the Roman empire. Now, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, uh, why? (laughs) Why do we have to see this image again? Right? Daniel has already interpreted this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's seeing another vision, which essentially is giving him the same information, except slightly different, right? Instead of being a statue, it's these four beasts. What's the purpose of this vision for Daniel? Um, The reason is God wants to show Daniel the same information, but from a different perspective. So the purpose of God giving this uh, dream to Nebuchadnezzar was to show Nebuchadnezzar that he is the God above all gods, that he is the revealer of mysteries, that he is the only true God. Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that because Nebuchadnezzar followed the gods of the Babylonians. But Daniel already believes that his God is the God of all gods. And so what God is showing now to Daniel is the same events, but from the perspective of the church. And in that sense, this is a vision for you, Christian. It is for you to receive comfort, not just that God knew 600 years of history and was able to carry his church through it, but also today as you live in modern Babylon, to know that nothing and no one can overcome God, Jesus, and his word. So what I want to do now is zoom in particularly on the last beast, because this is what most of the text is actually about. Uh, He kind of zooms past the first three beasts and focuses in on this last one, which we know to be the Roman Empire. And I want to explain a little bit of that because it starts to build up the tension that is resolved in Jesus. So let's look back at a couple of the verses. We'll start at verse 19 of the text. Daniel says, I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws of the beast that was crushed, that crushed, excuse me, and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the 10 horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, which uh, before which three of them fell, a horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. Okay, so like we said, this is the Roman Empire, and if you know your history, the Roman Empire is a unique entity in world history. Its ability to take over land, hold it, and, well, frankly, trample people underfoot as they did it, is unique in world history. The way that they controlled the world, at least the known world at that time, was unprecedented and, frankly, has not really been matched ever since. Uh, Rome was a unique entity, but it was into that unique entity that, as we see, God gave the kingdom to his people through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But what Daniel then sees out of this last kingdom, Rome, he sees something interesting. He sees 10 horns on this beast. And the explanation that is given to him is that these 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this kingdom. Um, Now, this verse has caused all sorts of problems in Christian understanding of this text. Uh, And and I debated whether or not to really explain that, but I think I have to, because maybe 
many of you, or even the majority of you, will have no idea what I'm talking about for a couple minutes here, but there are some of you who have interacted with this. Uh, If you're somebody who watches teaching online or reads Christian books that are not Lutheran books, you've probably come into contact with a misunderstanding of this verse, and so I think I just need to debunk it for us so that we know what Scripture says. Um, What many commentators and many popular commentators will do is they look at this text is they will make a, a fatal flaw. They will look at this text and think that these 10 kings are literally 10 kings. Right, they'll look at this and they'll say, well, the Roman Empire is this last beast, and out of the Roman Empire came 10 literal kings. And they'll go one of two ways with this. They'll either say there were literally 10 kings that came out of the Roman Empire, or they'll say that there was a huge gap between the end of the Roman Empire and the end of the world, and those 10 kings are going to show up at some time before the end of the world, and there's going to be this other king who subdues three of them and is boastful against the church, and so on and so forth. Um, Let me just first show you why those two ways just can't work. First, if your view of this is that these are 10 literal kings that come out of the Roman Empire, it is nearly impossible to nail down who these 10 kings were. Right? The, the fall of the Roman Empire was messy. Uh, it was just, it was just a, a terrible mess. And, and to, so to try to figure out who these 10 were, and then to try to find three of those 10 who were overcome by another one who became particularly boastful against the church is, I mean, frankly, I think it's impossible. So it, it's just not tenable to have a position that these 10 kings are literally 10 kings that came out of the Roman Empire. On the other hand, if you look at it as a huge gap that happens between Rome and what will be eventually the end of the world where 10 kings are going to come up, which if you're reading the popular authors, it'll be something like the European Union or or Russia or something like this will be these 10 kings. Uh, The problem is you're assuming a huge gap where there really isn't one in the text, right? Babylon leads to Medio Persia. Medio Persia leads to the Greeks. The Greeks lead to Rome. And then you just insert a huge gap between Rome and these 10 kings. It's just not there in the text. Uh, but there's something actually that's, that's worse about this. And that's that if you take this latter view where there's this big gap and then there's all this stuff that's going to happen before the end of the world, you not only contradict one of the central teachings of scripture, but you also take away one of the central comforts of scripture. So the way this theology works is uh, if there's a gap between the end of the Roman Empire and these 10 kings, it is there because Jesus' plan for salvation failed. Right? The way that they will conceive of this, if it's followed to its logical conclusion, is that Jesus came in order to inaugurate a kingdom in Israel. But Israel rejected him. And so he had to go to plan B, which was die on the cross and come back to life, set up this new thing called the New Testament church and just roll with that for a while until the end of the world. If you believe this theology, if you believe what is often called premillennial dispensationalism, you believe that the death of Jesus on the cross was plan B. The thing that you hold onto as the centerpiece of your faith was plan B. And... If it is the case that we're still waiting for these 10 kings to align and then three of them to fall and then one of them to come over it, then you lose the comfort that Jesus could come at any moment. I don't know about you, but uh, the world is messed up and I would like it to end soon. But if I hold on to this, then I have to wait for 10 kings to rise and then three to fall and then one to come up and that one to do all sorts of terrible things to the church. And I can't hold on to the comfort that Jesus could come anytime to take us out of this veil of tears. So what's the solution? Those of you who maybe tuned out and didn't listen, here's the time to come back in. The numbers are symbolic. They're symbolic. Because everything in the text is symbolic. 
Right, the logical jump that you make when you say these are literal numbers is everything is the text, in the text is symbolic until this one thing that I've decided is literal for no reason. It's all symbolic. You can demonstrate from the rest of scripture that numbers like 10 or three, or what Daniel will say a little bit later, time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half, those numbers are all used symbolically throughout the Old Testament. So why wouldn't they be symbolic here? Well, I believe that they are. And that actually leads us to a far more reasonable conclusion about what Daniel saw. He saw the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire fell, and it fell into 10, which is the number of completeness, all of the kingdoms that came out of the Roman Empire, of which there were many. But then he says that another king will arise, right? So out of these many kingdoms that come out of the Roman Empire, there's another king who will arise, and he's different, He's not just a political ruler. He's something else. He's going to subdue three of these kings. Now, why three? Three is uh, symbolic for part of the whole. So like, we would think of like a third as being a pretty significant amount, but not more than half, right? Three being a significant amount, but not more than half. So he has power over a significant amount, but not the majority of the kingdoms of the world. And it says that this guy, this king, is going to speak against the Most High, Maybe the word that we would use in English is he's going to contradict the Most High. He's going to say things that are different than what God has said. And as he does that, he is going to oppress the holy people. He's going to try to change set times, which would be like the worship life of the church, and the laws or the scripture of the church, the word that has been written down for us. And the text tells us that this will happen when the holy people are delivered into his hands that he will have power over God's people, that he will be in the church, and that he will be able to influence the church and be able to change the set times, days, and years and contradict what God has said. And he will do that for time, times, and half a time, which you should just read three and a half, being what this text is saying. Three and a half being symbolically half of seven, seven being the full time of God. The way that most commentators will look at this is they'll say three and a half is the picture of one of the parts of history that comes either before or after Jesus, Jesus being the centerpiece. So if seven is the whole and Jesus is the center, three and a half on either side. So what does he say? This is going to happen for the New Testament history of the church. So who is this guy and what is this all about? This has traditionally been called the Antichrist. It's also called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. 1 John refers to it a couple times as well. Uh, There are a number of characteristics of this Antichrist that we can pull out both from what Daniel said and also from these texts. Um, The first is that this person will be a ruler in the church, right? He is going to have power over God's people. We also know that he is going to contradict God. He's going to say things that are different than what God says that he's going to try to change the worship life of the church or the scriptures of the church, that he's going to be not just an individual person, but an attitude or office. And the reason I say that is because he says that this is for times, times, and half a time, right? So it's the whole history of the New Testament church and no human being is going to live through the entire New Testament church. So it's gotta be a repeatable attitude or office, a position or an attitude that people have that continues on. It's not bound up in one single individual human being. Fifth, we learn that it's unique to the New Testament era, right? We say that it's times, times, and time, times, and excuse me, half a time. So this is the teaching. Uh, there is going to be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom until Rome, 
After Rome, the, church is, or the, the world is going to fall into numerous other kingdoms, of which there will be some who are influenced by the power of this person, this Antichrist. Now, as you look at these characteristics, you might think of any number of people. You might think of some who are in great positions of authority. You might think of those who are in lesser positions of authority. Like we see, it's an attitude or an office. It's not bound up in any one person necessarily. There are antichrists in local congregations. There are antichrists at the top of religious organizations. What Daniel wants us to see or what God wants us to see through Daniel is the presence of this type of person. That there is going to be false teaching that is going to infiltrate the church. And that the call for us then is to hold on to the truth of scripture and the deliverance of Jesus. Right, what does the text continue to say? It says, the court will sit and his power, that is the Antichrist's power, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty and power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. So let's back up and then we'll make some practical applications. What is Daniel saying to us? He's saying that 600 years before all of this happened, God gave him a vision that there were going to be kingdoms that would rise and kingdoms that would fall until one kingdom out of which would come a particularly nasty attitude against the word of God. And that therefore we as modern Christians continuing to live in Babylon must be conscious of this and hold on to the truth of God's word and the promise of salvation from it. So let's get really practical. If you're following along, there's some note space here for you for practical applications. The first of those is we have to be honest about lies outside the church. We have to be honest that the world is telling us lies, right? That we still live in Babylon. I could go through any number of them, but for the sake of time, I'll pick out one that I think is particularly sinister right now. And that is that your body matters less than your mind or your soul. That who you are is who you are on the inside, not so much who you are on the outside. And this has application from everything from transgenderism to whether you attend worship in person or take the Lord's Supper. Right? There, are, there are lies across the spectrum on this. For example, do we ever get tempted to believe that it doesn't really matter if I take the Lord's Supper because I'm a believer, I know what I believe. You see how that's subtly a lie? That your mind is more of who you are than your body? If you're a Christian, you're here for the Lord's Supper. That's the practice of your faith. It's not just about holding on to some intellectual assents. It's about practicing what you know to be the life that has been given to you by a living human being. But the text is more focused on what I'll say is the second point here, that we ought to be honest about lies inside the church. We ought to be honest about lies inside the church. I think it is easy for us to want to excuse away lies within the church because frankly, it's hard. It's hard. Uh, if you're of a younger generation like me, you know, Gen Z or millennial, uh, you have grown up being told to be accepting of everybody's beliefs. And to some extent that is true, but that is not true within the Christian church. If there are those who are calling themselves Christians and they are going to teach something contrary to God's word, we need to be honest about that. And if you're a little bit older, I don't exactly know what it's like to be a little bit older than what I am, but I would just ask those of you who are a little older than me to reflect on this as well. What about your generations makes it hard for you to accept that there might be false teaching in the church that we need to call out? I mean, you are the generation that gave us participation trophies. And I don't know how that all works, but, but you do. And you're Christians. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk about it. Why is it hard for us to do this? Because we ought to be. We have to be honest about lies in the church. And that starts right here. It doesn't start out there with all the other churches, right? It starts right here. 
It starts by you being able to say, I like Caleb, I listen to him, but I don't trust him more than I trust scripture. Right, that when I'm up here talking about God's word, your Bible is open and you're reading it and making sure I'm telling you the truth. That when I'm done speaking, you go back and you make sure, you look at the text again. You make sure I'm telling you the truth. Before Sunday, I give you the text. It's on the bottom of your note sheet. The text we're gonna preach next week. You're reading it and you're looking at it. You're making sure that what I say lines up with the scripture. Because I love that you guys trust me but I'm just as fallible as any other human being. But scripture is not. We gotta be honest about that. And then we gotta be honest with each other. Look, when we hear somebody say something that's not in line with scripture, let's not just brush it under the rug. Let's not just say, oh, you know, it's so-and-so. That's how he is or how she is. Let's be honest and say, let's open a Bible. Can we, look, can we think about that? Can we talk about that? Let's make sure we know what God says about that. It's scary, right? We're scared we're going to offend each other. So if you're somebody who says something about God's word and somebody says, hey, can we check out the scripture? Rejoice in that. Open a Bible. This isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And then let's be honest about lies outside our congregation. Let's be honest. Let's say what that church teaches or what that person teaches is not true. doesn't mean we hate them. doesn't mean we're going to throw them under the bus, but we are just going to be honest about what's not true. We're going to hold on to scripture above all other things. And then, let's be honest with the danger of false teaching. Like, if we don't do this, there is an inherent danger. It is that Satan wants to pull us away from the truth of God's word and the comfort that is contained therein. I think this was an assumption for me, and so maybe it's an assumption for you, uh, at least for a long time. I believe that there were some doctrines of scripture that like, yeah, God said something about that, but, you know, if you don't get that right, it's not that big of a deal. There are some doctrines that are really important, but then there's the ones that are, they're kind of periphery. I mean, in a sense, that's true, right? Like if you don't have exactly the right way to look at, for example, what church fellowship is or what men and women are and what they're supposed to do in the church or exactly what the office of the ministry is supposed to look like, um, those things ultimately don't save you, Jesus does. But as one theologian said it, every false doctrine strikes at Christ. In other words, every place where false doctrine starts to happen, it tries to weasel its way towards Jesus to take your comfort away. And I've been doing this long enough that I've started to see that. That even things that we might think, oh, it doesn't really matter if they believe that. Those things actually do start to strike at the comfort that we have in Jesus. And this also ought to give us a little bit of humility. We're not Lutherans because we think we're right or it makes us feel good about ourselves or we can boast that, hey, we got the right doctrine. That's not the point. We hold on to what scripture says because it gives us the comfort of salvation. And we want everyone else to have that. If any of us goes out into the world thinking we're better because we got right doctrine, we've given up the faith. The faith is that you're saved, not because of your good works or your right doctrine, but because of Jesus. The reason we hold on to it is it gives us free comfort, certain comfort that cannot be taken away. And anything less strikes at that comfort. So then finally, let's remember that no lie can overcome God's word. As we hold on to God's word as Lutherans together, let's remember that nothing can overcome him. Right, in the same way we saw from Revelation, we also see here in Daniel that behind all of this is the ancient of days, a beautiful term, right? A a person who is ancient from the existence of time. (laughs) And that he was dressed in purity, in power, with fire, to show that he is above all things and has power over all things. And then what happens? From that one comes one like a son of man, right? One who looks like a human being, but there's something different about him. He comes and he 
He approaches the Ancient of Days and he's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, something that would only happen to royalty. He takes his seat, right? And is given authority, glory, and sovereign power like God. He looks like the Son of Man, but he is also God. And you know exactly who this is. This is Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who took on human flesh in the virgin's womb to become one of us to save all of us so that he could be both an advocate for us and our savior, that he could die the death we should have died and give us the life that is only contained in God. And that's your hope. You know, if you could look forward 600 years from this moment, just like Daniel was, you know, I don't, I don't think I would want to. <laughs> I mean, who knows what kind of crazy stuff is going to happen over the next 600 years? What sort of crazy world powers are going to do weird stuff and terrible stuff and atrocious stuff? But here's what you can know about the next 600 years, the next forever. God's got this. Jesus is still king. The ancient of days is outside of this little thing we call life. And he is bringing us out of it. So hold on to his word. It is the only true anchor you have in this mess of a world filled with lies. So let me finish with this. Um, this month in our... our uh, Church Body's periodical called Forward in Christ, there was a really good article on the back page by Pastor, Pastor Nathan Nass. Uh, Nathan Nass, I went to school with him for a little while. He's a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and he wrote this really good article. I'll just give you an excerpt of it, but I think it's really appropriate for us in this Reformation Day. He writes, the phone rang in my office. The voice said, I'm looking for a Lutheran church. That's a rare thing to hear in Tulsa. My heart raced. We're a Lutheran church. How can we help you? He answered, I'm looking for a Lutheran church to donate all my books. Huh? He said, I loved Martin Luther's writings. I've never heard of someone so in love with God's word. I loved his devotional approach to every part of scripture and how God's word was part of his daily life in every way. That's great, I said. So you want to be a Lutheran, right? No, he said. I don't want to be a Lutheran because Lutherans aren't like that anymore. The Lutherans I know and the Lutheran churches I've visited aren't like Martin Luther at all. People don't read God's word anymore. The focus at church seems to me more like a country club than a church. Lutherans today don't love God's word like Martin Luther did, so I'm not going to be a Lutheran. I want to donate all my books to your church. My heart sank. Not just because he wasn't going to join our church, but because he was right. At least he was right about me. His words convicted me because I immediately thought of how little I read the Bible of how often I'm too busy doing important pastor things instead of sitting and reading the word of God. Lutherans today don't love God's word like Martin Luther did. That's true for me. Is it true for you? As we celebrate the Reformation, let's go back to our roots. Let's do the most Lutheran thing in the world. Read God's word. Today, tomorrow, the next day. Wouldn't it be great if people could describe us like that man described Martin Luther? I've never seen people so in love with God's word. In the busyness of life, read God's word and find God's strength for another day. In the darkness of depression, read God's word and hear of God's never-ending love for you. Under the weight of guilt, read God's word and remember how the blood of Jesus already forgave you. In the face of death, read God's word and long for the glory of heaven. Let's get back to our Lutheran roots. Let's fall in love with God's word. That's who we are. And by God's grace, that's who we will be. Let's be the church that loves scripture. Let's ask for God's help. Jesus, you've given us your word 
to correct, rebuke, teach, instruct, and train us so that every one of us could be prepared for every good work. But it is so easy for us in this age of distraction and lies to lose that love of the word that you've given us. So I pray that you refire that love in us, in our communities, that we would love your word, that we would speak your word to one another, that we would pray your word back to you. Make us a church that's proud to hold the name Lutheran, not because of any one man, but because of what he believed. Your word is supreme. We ask that in your name. Amen.